Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's January 2024. At the beginning of a new year, we often find ourselves thinking about the future. So for this episode of the podcast, I've invited the authors of four papers published in this month's issue of Itchy to join me for a discussion about the future of surveillance for healthcare-associated infections, or HAIs. We'll talk about some changes that will be coming to many of us in the relatively near future, and we'll also talk about a somewhat more distant horizon, which is the use of artificial intelligence, or AI, in HAI surveillance. My guests today are Dr. Weston Branch Elliman, an infectious disease physician at the VA Boston Healthcare System in Boston, Massachusetts, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and the associate chief of staff for scientific affairs at the VA National Artificial Intelligence Institute. Dr. David Klassen, professor of medicine in the Division of Epidemiology at the University of Utah School of Medicine and the Ideas Center at the VA Salt Lake City Health System in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Ray Dantes, Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and Medical Advisor to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Healthcare Safety Network. Dr. Adrian Schmidt, a Senior Infectious Disease Physician and the Head of Hospital Hygiene at the Cantonal Hospital Winterthur in Winterthur, Switzerland. And finally, joining us from San Diego, California, is Dr. Calvin Yu, Vice President for Medical and Scientific Affairs in North America for Becton Dickinson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thank Dave. you for having Thanks, us. Dave. It's exciting to be here. Thanks for having us. Hi. And Calvin and Ray, welcome back to the podcast. I think you were with us back in October of 2022. Um, so welcome back. Uh, before we get into our discussion of the future of HAI surveillance, I want to talk for just a few minutes maybe about why we do surveillance and how we currently do surveillance, because I think that will be important background to have in mind as we then start talking about how and why the strategies that we use for surveillance are changing. So David and Ray, you published a commentary in this month's issue that addresses a lot of these topics. Uh, and I know, Weston, you've talked about this in several of your publications as well. So maybe I'll ask um, you three to get us started today. Uh, and maybe to get us started is why is surveillance for HAIs and other healthcare-related outcomes important? Yeah, and this is David Klassen, uh, Dave. Um, basically, I think surveillance um, uh, is something that we started back in the 1970s. Uh, for detection of HAIs because our previous method, which was voluntary reporting of HAIs, had failed miserably. And uh, the CDC in, in, in several studies showed the flaws in that methodology and the power of surveillance. And so uh, we began surveillance, at least in the HAI world, back in the 70s and have augmented it and further developed it and automated it over time. What's interesting is the rest of the world of safety is still stuck on voluntary reporting and has not made that transition that we have in infectious disease. Uh, but I think they will come shortly, uh, if you will, into our arena of understanding that the best way to detect events is not through voluntary reporting, which misses 90% of them, but through prospective surveillance, as we've done for almost 60 years now. Yeah, I'll just add to what uh, what uh, David said. You know, we've clearly, you know, just taking us back through even through the last decade, seen clear gains in many of our HAIs um, tracked, you know, through the National Healthcare Safety Network. 
But then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic was a pretty hard reminder that that collective progress in reducing many HAIs and promoting safer healthcare can't be taken for granted. So surveillance state it remains important in helping us you know, measure the quality of our care, both in, in normal times and in hard times as well. And, and, and just to add to what Ray said, if you look at the numbers for all safety problems in the United States, our biggest success in reducing them has been in healthcare-associated infections. And I would argue a lot of that is because we focused on prospective surveillance and measurement. And just taking a step back, the reason why surveillance and measurement is so important is essentially, if you don't know about something, you can't do anything about it. And so surveillance serves two purposes. One, it's to help us have an idea of what's happening. And then two, over time, it gives us the opportunity to look at whether or not the interventions that we implemented to try to improve things actually worked. So um, the information is essential for informing what we do and informing what we do on the ground. And so with that in mind, how are we currently doing surveillance, this prospective surveillance that you mentioned, David? What are some of the current methodologies or the most common methodologies uh, that are being used um, to detect those infections? Absolutely, Dave. Um, there are a variety of them, which, which we summarize in our paper that are going on. And at the most manual, uh, uh, infection control practitioners are going out and manually reviewing charts to detect the presence of uh, hospital-acquired infections and then reporting that to uh, NHSN. And then um, we uh, have been using, uh, if you will, um, uh, uh, a form of electronic data transfer to make this manual detection a little bit easier to NHSN. So uh, that's another method we're using. And then uh, uh, we have moved into the world of EHRs, as you're well aware, and those EHR uh, data sets allow us to start to automate this process where the computer can identify target patients for uh, us to perform surveillance on to see if they truly do have uh, an infection. Um, and that initially was standalone vendors, but, but now that's been picked up by most of the EHR vendors. So you can do that uh, directly with your EHR vendor rather than having to hire a third party. And then where we're headed next, and some places are doing this, is to use the, uh, the EHR and associated systems to automatically detect these program, these uh, hospital-acquired infections and report them directly to NHSN. And, and we're just at the beginning uh, of that process, which will clearly be enabled by AI and other techniques. So I think you know all, all the papers we're going to be talking about today describe to at least some degree the limitations of those current approaches that you just described for us. Uh, and perhaps that's the rationale for the studies that you all have done uh, regarding some of these newer technologies for, um, for surveillance. So to set the stage for those discussions, can, maybe, can you talk a little bit about what some of the major limitations are um, associated with what we're currently doing for surveillance? Sure. Um, uh, the, the first major limitation is uh, basically just the burden of having to do all this uh, and the resources required to do all this. Um, uh, automation has helped, but still there's a lot of burden in collecting all this information all the time. And then the second major problem is um, when you do so much of this manually, there's always the room for subjective interpretation leading to problems in inter-rater reliability and the validity of the data. So they're probably two of the biggest uh, challenges that we face with our current surveillance. 
I also think in the, this is likely to be a challenge no matter what. Anytime you develop a surveillance definition, you know, it's possible to have a look at that surveillance definition and figure out how you can manipulate it so that your numbers look better. And so the question with surveillance is always, are we measuring what we want to measure? And are we measuring something useful? Um, or are we measuring something that doesn't have a lot of meaning? And that's going to be an ongoing challenge, no matter how good um, or how great the AI or the technology gets. Um, there's always going to be a tension between whether or not, uh, whether we're measuring what we want to measure, whether or not there are things we can do to, to kind of move deck chairs on the Titanic without actually improving anything, and whether or not we are appropriately comparing across institutions. And, and, and just to build on that, we have a history of using administrative codes to measure infections, and we've learned painfully that they are easily gained. Uh, by organizations that, that believe that their infection rates might hurt them in reimbursement or reputation. So uh, that that remains a challenge as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, for things like catheter-associated urinary tract infections and C. diff, there are other ways you can game it. You know, you can have somebody come in and immediately check a urine culture. And then if it's positive, it's not going to count because the patient came in with a positive urine culture. Or you can do C. diff a screening on admission, and then it doesn't count as a hospital-acquired C. diff, even though really the exposure was antibiotics in the hospital. And so there are ways to game the system beyond uh, beyond just uh, looking at codes. Um, once you see kind of how things are defined, you can always change your practice. Um, but do those practices actually improve care? Probably not. And And, and just to build on that, in addition, in the EHR, we can alter documentation to game it as well which is another technique uh, hospitals have employed. All right, so clearly some limitations to what we're currently doing um, and some substantial resource requirements, as you mentioned, David. And so let's then start to focus on some of the new methods for surveillance that are being developed for use in some of these national reporting programs that you um, talked about before, uh, such as CMS and the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network. Thanks, Dave. I can take that question. So the CDC has heard you know, that feedback loud and clear, and there, there is a desire here to uh, increase the automation of um, our data reporting, uh, reduce or improve the objectivity of, uh, of uh, those determinations for healthcare-associated infections and other adverse events, um, and uh, get additional information that can be used for what we what we're going to be calling complementary metrics. So, how do you evaluate you know things that are maybe adjacent to the measure that look for things like you know people trying to manipulate you know the uh, certain practices to try to get around the measure. So, we're calling that suite of of uh, of measures complementary metrics. And then we also think there's an opportunity to improve greatly improve our risk adjustment. And we touch a little bit about that in the paper that like Calvin and I did here. So some of you may have heard of this you know, technology called FIRE, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. Um, I'm definitely not a computer scientist, so I won't talk through, uh, I'll give kind of the version for, the version for, for physicians here. So FIRE is this uh, re relatively recent set of health IT standards that is optimized for uh, both secure and rapid data interoperability. 
that really mimics how we exchange data all the time using, you know, using the internet that other industries use. So for example, when you purchase a t-shirt online, there is this often fairly seamless communication of your personal information between the t-shirt vendor and some separate online payment service like a PayPal or Amazon Pay, Google Pay, Apple Pay, whatever. Fire takes a similar approach to securely exchanging health information. Of course, it's, you know, like many things in the health IT space, we're, we're years behind, you know, where the rest of the, of the internet is, but we're catching up. So there are a good chance that your hospital is already using Fire. So in 2021, CMS enacted rules that required healthcare systems to provide instant access to via Fire APIs or, um, to certain EHR data elements electronically. Um, and so that manifests, for example, um, in phone applications. And so you may have noticed, you know, starting in 2021, that suddenly your patients could see their lab tests exactly the same time as you did. And uh, many of us have probably had the, the experience of, of rounding on a patient and they said, hey, doc, what do you think about this lab test? You haven't seen it yet um, because they see it, you know, exact, it's available to them exactly at uh, the same time it's available to you. And it's, uh, if it's mandated for most hospitals to be using this now. Um, so if your hospital is using it, you know, your hospital has been plugged into, you know, fire APIs, you know, for the last couple of years now. And so if your hospital has been sending, you know, healthcare information, lab tests, vital signs, microbiology data, you know, to patient smartphones, you know, why can't the CDC also tap into that information for, um, for tracking healthcare associated infections? And so that's what we've been working on for the last uh, couple of years. We are in uh, what we're called beta testing right now. We have about a dozen different hospital or hospital systems that are piloting and working out the kinks uh, for our new digital quality uh, measure interface. And we look forward to talking more about exactly you know, what our timeline is going to be for releasing these digital quality measures and those uh, that um, uh, and details about how to, to enroll for those uh, digital quality measures in our NHSN annual training, uh, which takes place uh, starting on March 18th of this year. Can you mention maybe what some of the first measures that we're going to see with that technology coming from NHSN? Sure. And I will emphasize, I think the next question is, you know, when is it going to be mandatory? So everything is going to be voluntary at the start, but the very first measure is going to be hypoglycemia. So outside of the realm of, of HAIs, and then followed shortly afterwards by healthcare onset treated C. difficile and hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia. We're also looking at uh, releasing our respiratory pathogens surveillance after, shortly afterwards, which includes COVID, flu, and RSV. And then we have several measures that are further up the pipeline um, that we don't have a set date for yet, but those include venous thromboembolism, uh, measures around sepsis, non-ventilator healthcare-associated pneumonia, and several others. And for people who didn't catch it, if you're interested in hearing more about that hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia measure, Calvin and Ray talked about that during the October 2022 episode of the podcast. So um, check that one out. Dave, if I if I may, you know, listening to what Weston and David and Ray were, were saying, there is an element of urgency for the HA metrics to be more, uh, have more specificity and accuracy to, I think Weston brought up sort of the gaming you know, traditionally infection prevention programs. And so before BD, I was at Kaiser where I was their chief of infectious diseases and infection control officer. And over, over the last 10 to 15 years, these, these metrics have become proxy measures for business cases for these 
traditionally underfunded programs, particularly after the pandemic where procedural surgery-based have gotten a lot of the funding because uh, they had to halt during the pandemic. And so there is there is unfortunately competition within hospital and healthcare systems to get ICP programs funded. And so the more accurate these metrics are, the better those business cases can be when we're trying to get you know more FTEs to do the job that they're tasked to do, which is to improve mitigation of HAIs and the treatment thereof. Thanks. Good points. And so, Calvin, you and several of your colleagues, uh, including Ray, published a paper this month that I think provides a really good example of some of the potential benefits of these digital quality measures we've been talking about. And specifically, you looked at a candidate definition for the hospital onset treated C. difficile infection. So maybe I can ask you to talk about your study and what you were trying to accomplish with that. Sure. This actually follows what Weston was pointing out. So, uh, you know, C. C. difficile, as most people know, is a clinical diagnosis. Uh, You take the uh, past medical history, past and recent antimicrobial use, marry that with a physical exam, and then you use laboratory information to make that diagnosis. Um, And so the the current hospital onset C. diff uh, metric is based on lab definition only and was the best metric for the time that it was initiated, I believe around 10, 12 years ago. However, as, as someone brought up here, technology and electronic medical record capabilities have evolved. And so it is a good time to update the hospital onset C. diff to something that matches more closely a clinical diagnosis, you know, i.e. marrying a lab-based definition with clinical signs of intent to treat, such as uh, anti-therapeutic uh, C. diff medication. And so how did you define that hospital onset treated C. difficile um, infection for the purpose of your study? So we we had two criteria. The uh, first was the lab-based identification of uh, C. difficile after day three of hospitalization. But then the second one was actually the use of a C. difficile therapeutic uh, medication. So PO, oral vanco, fidaxomycin, oral metronidazole. All right. And so then you went on to evaluate the performance of this candidate definition. So how did you go about doing that? Yeah, we, we so we approached that analysis in three major steps. Uh, the first, we identified candidate variables that were reported in the medical literature to influence um, what we called uh, treated hospital onset C. diff rates using bivariate analysis. And the second step, we constructed uh, two models, a simple and complex model, to predict the treated hospital onset C. diff uh, rates using risk-adjusted SIR-derived rates from regression, those re- same regression models and assessed best model fit. And then finally, as sort of a exercise in due diligence, we compared hospital rankings and we had uh, more than 200 hospitals in this data set over a period of five years and 9 million admissions assessed. And so finally, we compared hospital rankings using the um, unadjusted observed treated hospital onset C. diff rates compared to rankings based on the SIRs derived from the two models. And so it might be worth calling out that the simple model used the traditional descriptive variables like uh, age, gender, hospital descriptors, descriptors like teaching status and, and total number of beds. And the complex model used those same descriptive variables, but it also looked at the community onset C. difficile rate and the C. difficile testing practices. And I guess maybe I'll, I'll highlight that you didn't use 
fire technology to do this in real time, like might happen with NHSN, but this was retrospective data analysis from an existing data set that you had access to. Is that correct? That That's correct. And the years were the five years leading up to March 2020 uh, and the pandemic. And obviously we didn't include the pandemic years. So what did you learn uh, when you applied those definitions to your population? Yeah, so a couple of things. So the, the complex model ended up demonstrating better model performance and identified the most influential predictors, if you will, as assessed by higher incidence rate ratios. And so those were increased hospital onset testing intensity and prevalence, the community onset uh, C. difficile rate, and community onset testing intensity and female. And so as an example, among the 50 hospitals ranked in the fourth quartile, which is the best performing based on observed uh, hospital onset C. diff rates, uh, 16% remained at the same quartile when using the complex model SIR, and 78% actually improved in their percentile ranking, and actually 6% shifted to lower or worse performing uh, quartiles. And so the risk adjustment actually moved in both directions, uh, which I think is important because we, when you want to show that risk adjustment is doing something, it can't be they're all moving in the same direction. You should have some hospitals that go up and some that go down. It sounds like that got to a lot of the issues and challenges that I think Weston brought up earlier in terms of different practices at different hospitals may really impact or impair our ability to, to truly assess and compare um, performance across hospitals. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, based on what Weston said, it, it you know, we, we did, you know, some of the two major findings from a clinical and operational standpoint was that the higher the hospital onset uh, C. difficile testing intensity and prevalence, that correlated with higher treated hospital onset C. diff. While in contrast, the community onset C. diff testing intensity had a negative correlation with your ostensibly reportable hospital onset C. diff. And so this, this makes sense because, you know, maybe this is tangential evidence that identifying C. diff early, earlier on generated the uh, infection prevention and contact isolation policies, which in turn decreases uh, transmission of hospital onset C. diff. And also it's note to look at it in the reverse view that community onset testing prevalence, increasing that, in other words, increasing, you know, just massive testing in the first two days of hospitalization, regardless of whether you thought they had C. diff or not, which we know some places do that, that didn't correlate with an increase or decrease of hospital onset treated C. diff. So hopefully the known practice of increasing testing on random patients in the first two to three days of admission in hopes of, you know, maybe decreasing your um, or working out your metrics in a non-scientific scientific way, that practice won't achieve a lower reportable hospital onset treated C. diff, particularly with the extra layer of needing an anti-C. Um, diff antimicrobial therapy on board. So hopefully that gaming that uh, Nick Weston brought up is mitigated and built in and embedded in this new metric. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to what um, Calvin said, you know, from the CDC perspective, you know, I think this this study really demonstrates the importance of incorporating that testing data into to our C. difficile surveillance. And so I see this you know, uh, being important in two different ways. 
you know, one, as, as Weston mentioned, you know, there is this importance in understanding how measures are influencing testing practices, and we can track that independently in these complementary metrics that I had mentioned earlier. So we can see if the new measure, you know, promotes, you know, more, uh, if we see spikes in testing, you know, earlier in hospitalizations, because when we tap into these fire resources, we're downloading all the C. difficile testing data, positive and, and negative. The other piece that I think that our study with Calvin, you know, illustrates is that those testing practices also need to be incorporated into those risk adjustment models when we produce those standardized uh, infection ratios. Well, I think that's you know, really exciting and I think does definitely kind of show how important some of these new measures will be in terms of being able to incorporate some new data, perhaps do better risk adjustment uh, and take the burden off of our infection preventionists who have largely been doing this surveillance, if we can now do it essentially entirely electronically. So I look forward to hearing more about that uh, on March 18th, uh, as you mentioned, Ray, at the NHSN annual training sessions. So to change gears a bit, uh, there's also been a lot of interest in and discussion of the role that artificial intelligence or AI could or should play in healthcare. We know that ChatGPT passed the U.S. medical licensing exam. Um, we've heard that they can be that AI systems can read abnormal X-rays with greater sensitivity than human radiologists. Um, but more directly related to our topic of discussion today, Adrian, uh, you and your colleague published a paper in this month's issue that describes the potential use of artificial intelligence for HAI surveillance. So what were you trying to accomplish in your study? Well, we asked ourselves whether it is possible to use publicly available artificial intel intelligence to a tool such as GPT-4 in the surveillance of nosocomial infections, such as catheter-associated urinary tract infections. The problem we encounter, the, the, the idea behind it is that automation of surveillance requires considerable IT support, which in our case is limited. So how did you go about assessing how uh, GPT-4 uh, would perform in um, CAUTI surveillance? Well, we created two data sets, data set one and data set two using Microsoft Excel. Both datasets contain the information on uh, fictitious patient demographics, that, that is date of birth, gender, body temperature, urine culture results, calendar dates of admission, and catheterization. Dataset 1 was created to represent the normal patient population in acute care hospital comprising data that are usually available as structured data elements in the electronic healthcare uh, record. Dataset 2 also included information on clinical symptoms such as information on dysuria, suprapubic uh, tenderness, urinary urgency, and so on. And dataset two was created to check whether GPT-4 was able to include all CAUTI criteria in its analysis. Um, GPT-4 was first provided dataset one and subsequently dataset two as comma separated values files. GPT-4 was asked to analyze the data and to identify patients with CAUTIs based on NHSN criteria, as well as to retrieve patient and catheter days and to calculate the catheter utilization ratio. Sensitivity, specificity, and predictive values of CAUTI detection by GPT-4 were calculated initially and after repeated training. And as a gold standard, manual detection based on NHSN criteria was performed separately by an infection prevention specialist and an infectious disease doctor. And so how did um, GPT-4 perform? Well, to put it short, performance of GPT-4 was quite good. 
Um, with respect to data set one, data set one included a total of 79 patients, 29 patients with and 50 patients without indwelling urinary, urinary catheters. Manual detection revealed five patients with a CAUTI and a GPT-4 initially showed a sensitivity of 80%, specificity of 92 and the positive and negative predictive value of 67 and 96% respectively. And after repeated training with 18 rounds of two to 25 queries each, GPT-4 correctly uh, recognized all five patients with counties, but still falsely reported a single case. So the final results using data set one showed sensitivity of 100%, specificity of 96% and positive and negative predictive value of uh, 83 and 100% respectively. Uh, with respect to data set two, there were uh, 50 patients, 35 with and 15 without uh, urinary catheter. And according to manual detection, there were 11 patients uh, that met the NHSN criteria for a CAUTI. GPT-4 identified 12 patients with CAUTIs, 10 of which met the criteria. Two patients were falsely identified as having CAUTI and one patient with a CAUTI was, was not detected. So the analysis of data set two yielded a sensitivity of 91, specificity of 92 and positive and negative predictive value of 83 and 96% respectively. And the patient days and catheter days and catheter utilization ratio were correctly retrieved by GPT-4 in both data sets, but several attempts were necessary because GPT-4 encountered difficulties with data structure, in this case, and initially erroneously counted empty Excel cells. Uh, so there, there were no catheters placed as one catheter today. Thanks for that. And it's, um, it sounds great and easy, but certainly it, it's not something you can do with straight out of the box. It sounds like if you had to do what, 18 rounds of training to get it to perform as well as it did, uh, and maybe not something that all of us are, are quite ready to do on our own. And I suspect there may be other challenges that we should be aware of if, as we think about how AI could be used in real world HAI surveillance. Were there common challenges that you found when you were working with um, GPT-4 in doing surveillance? Well, the answer you get from GPT depends on, on the prompts uh, you're using. So that, that, that's, that's a crucial point to make. And if I say training, it's not only training of, of GPT, but it's also that you start to learn how you interact with GPT. And uh, at first, we, for, for example, we didn't really know how to um, give it the, the data, like uh, how, how to uh, send uh, the Excel data. Uh, because it didn't accept uh, Excel back then. Now maybe there are plugins that you can use, but but as we used it, there weren't any. So it took us time to to find out that we uh, how we can uh, transfer the data to GPT, for example. So it's a, a learning on both sides. Great. Well, thanks. And I'd love to get input again from you as well as from Weston, who I know thinks about this quite a bit in some of her roles in terms of what, you know, perhaps some of the limitations of this particular study in terms of telling us what we need to know about AI for HAI surveillance uh, and the use of some of this technology in general. So I think number one, I think it's an awesome study and I think it's great to be thinking about how we can begin to integrate these uh, new technologies into clinical care. And I think one thing we need to acknowledge is a lot of technology has been used for a long time. And part of it is that we have had some recent specific advantages that are advances. 
that have gotten a lot of press, but to some level, a lot of this has been used in healthcare in a long time. So some of this is about the press and what the press is covering. And some of it is about new technologies, particularly kind of advancements in the area of large language models of which ChatGPT is one. So the first thing I would like to caution everyone about ChatGPT is that it is an open model and then it learns based on what you give it. And so it is not currently in a protected health environment. And so if you take your patient's chart and you put it into ChatGPT, you are actually giving ChatGPT access to your patient's HIPAA protected information and it's going to remember it forever. So a key thing that was done in the study is that they use fictitious patients and use of real patient data remains a significant barrier. And it is not something that anyone should be embarking on. Um, increasingly, there are going to be large language models that exist within protected EHR spaces that we can use, but ChatGPT is kind of both the most famous one and also not one that you can do that. The other big challenge with ChatGPT, as I mentioned, is it learns based on what we tell it. And a key, a key challenge in all of this is going to be algorithmic equity and, and learning and equity. And the reality is that because algorithms are trained based on the data that we have, if there's missing data, it's not going to learn about those missing data. And data are not missing in a random fashion. They're missing in a non-random ways. And the people who have difficulty getting into the healthcare system, the people who have limited access to resources are inherently less represented in, in these systems. And so they are going to be inherently less represented in the data that are used to train algorithms. And there is substantial potential for differences based on the data that goes into the model um, to get differences and inequitable differences in output. And so we need to be very careful in thinking about what data went into the model, how the data was trained, and then what data comes out of the model. So I think two, two big things to think about are one, um, just simple regulatory stuff about HIPAA protections and making sure we aren't giving the algorithm inadvertently information that's meant to be protected for our patients. And two, thinking about the data sets and the data that goes into train the models and whether or not we're getting equitable or inequitable output. The other thing is that I would like to say is the regulation around a lot of this is a really rapidly changing space. And I think it remains somewhat in question how this is all going to be regulated. And so regulatory issues do come into play. There is a new executive order and new trustworthy AI principles that are coming out. And so be sure to have a look at what the current regula re regulation is, because I just caution you to be careful in using these, particularly as we move forward. So I think as far as thinking about AI and healthcare in general, two questions to ask yourself. One, is this something that is going to be used prospectively to impact clinical care? So am I implementing some kind of information system that is actually going to be implemented with the idea of changing clinical care? Because that's going to be a key question for regulation. And two, is, is this an AI system that is being updated? In which case it's going to fall under a certain set of regulations similar to that of medical devices. And if those two, if the answer to either of those questions is no, you go down a different and less substantial regulatory pathway. So it sounds like Adrian's study was a great proof of concept, but I think we have, sounds like we have a long way to go before this is going to be something that we're all using for our HAI surveillance. But I, I love the, the effort to try to prove how we can use this to our advantage. 
I also have to add that uh, the limited number of patients we used was limited by a prompt length of 8,192 tokens. So uh, this, this one has to bear in mind. So the, one can't uh, enter uh, as many data as one wants. That's, and that's certainly also a very important limitation of, of our small certainly. study. And the use of a curated data set as compared to turning it loose uh, on your electronic health record where things are not nearly as well structured and defined. Of course. Yeah. So thanks to all of you for this great discussion. And at the end of each episode of the podcast, we ask each participant to give our listeners a concrete recommendation or an idea of something they can do in the very near term, you know, today or this week or next week, to make their system better, make their hospital safer. And so with that in mind and thinking about this episode and the future of HAI surveillance, what can we in infection prevention or in our hospitals be doing now to get prepared for this new type of reporting that's heading in our direction? And maybe I'll start Adrian, I'll give you the, the first uh, shot at this. In our setting, it would be very uh, important and crucial that um, that all the hospitals would have uh, some kind of data lake or warehouse, so any kind of central data storage that uh, one could use, because um, that's the main problem we encounter, that we, we uh, can't really use our data as there is no central storage. Weston. So I'm going to say it again because it's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night, but uh, really be careful in thinking about HIPAA protections and where your data are going um, and also what data go into feed the model. I think that these two issues are going to be critical, especially as we try to build tr a trustworthy and equitable framework. Calvin. I think with the discussion we had on digitizing these HIA metrics and perhaps even broadening, broadening it, like with HOB, we need to figure out operationally what, what segment of the hospital healthcare system would actually use this data for the betterment of patient safety. And so one thing that got lost in the shuffle of the pandemic is that CMS had a conditions of participation ruling in March of 2020 that codified that antimicrobial stewardship programs are required by hospitals that participate in CMS and should have a committee membership that includes infection prevention and control, a laboratory leadership, a quality hospital administrator that can actually do something about the findings. So I think now is the time in preparation of these new metrics and new AI technology to identify HAIs. Now is the time to pull on that thread to create and augment programs that can help inform best practices for mitigation, identification, and treatment of HAIs particularly where antimicrobial stewardship com comes into play because they're involved in, in all of these HAIs. And there are actually papers out there that have shown that an ID consult or stewardship program involvement can actually get patients on uh, definitive therapy faster and often with better outcomes. David. Yeah, I'd say two things. Uh, one is as we automate more and more, it's going to uncover the problems we have in clinical documentation. So uh, that's going to force hospitals to spend a whole lot of time worrying about, do they document this as free text? Do they document it as uh, coded text? And we will they will find as they go down this road, they have deficiencies in their documentation. So th that's one. The other thing I think with AI is, Right now, the regulatory environment looks like it's going to regulate AI at the vendor level, but not at the hospital level. Indeed, the recent rule that just came out of ONC says they're not going to regulate AI applications developed at the hospital level. 
which is interesting and, uh, and and potentially controversial, but not not atypical in terms of our regulatory history before. So that means organizations are going to have to develop their own AI governance approach. And uh, I think that's going to become really important because many hospitals are building several of their own AI applications. Last but not least, Ray. All right. Well, I definitely have to plug our NHSN uh, annual training starting on March 18th. If you're not able to attend for any reason, those materials will be posted on the NHSN website, but we're going to go into a lot of depth on the digital quality metrics and how to prepare your hospitals uh, for reporting. Great tips. Thanks, everyone. And thanks for again for joining me today for this look into the future uh, and for your work to advance the field of HAI surveillance. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.